Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 136, Pen Pals. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week, Ken and listeners, here's what we do. We watch Star Trek, and then we pick it apart. We try to figure out what makes it tick and what makes it hold up. Or not, are there morals, meanings, and messages that we can learn from watching Star Trek? Today, we cover the episode Pen Pals. This is going to be a tough episode, John. I mean, this is a, this is a going out worldwide. Mm-hmm. The amount of postage that we're going to have to cover out of the mission mm-hmm. log budget. You know, it might it might almost be better to go someplace and call everybody to us, <laughs> which well, you know we do from now and now and again. I hadn't thought about that. If we if we just recorded the show, I mean, should we do it as a transcript and we just mail it to all of our subscribers? Is I that, don't know. You know, I don't know. Maybe we should do something different this time around. We yeah. should send it special delivery though, so everybody who's listening now, uh, just stay home and just wait because there's something in the mail for you. <laughs> Yes, yes. And uh, speaking of mail, yes, though, because we love pen pals and I'm not just giving away the uh, the episode. I'm saying that we love pen pals and that we love hearing from people who hear us. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are easy ways to stay in touch with us. Um, Mission Log Pod is the address that you need to know to find us on Skype, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can call 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And uh, on our show website, you can find do- discovered documents and uh, all kinds of great stuff. That would all be at missionlogpodcast.com. And please remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Let me ask, let me ask you a question. Yeah, yeah, By yeah. the way, have you ever um, just answered the Mission Log phone number? Oh, you know what? I, I haven't done that. <laughs> I, uh, I, should, I do, should I maybe just set aside time and just be on and ready to go? Well, I just wonder and, if that would freak people out. Because uh, for, for my other show, for my uh, Mac podcast, Mac OS Can, that I've had for mm-hmm. you know, however many years I've had that, um, mm-hmm. I've had a Skype number for that show for like four years or five maybe. Six? It's wow. been a few years is my point. Every now and then I think about just answering it because I assure people when they call that number, I, I assure people when I promote it on my show that don't worry, nobody is going to answer your call. You can just leave a voicemail. <laughs> Every now and then I think I should just answer. So maybe one day you and I should do that. Just I, th- I think that's a good idea. We, we should just do it in different voices. No, Hello, thank yeah. you for calling Mission Log. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like help fun. You? Oh, or we could Im- imitate uh, Star Trek stars. Ooh, even better. I'm yeah. not going to do that right now. No, uh, I'm not going to do that either. Yes. But you might be one of the lucky winners who calls Skype. And, yeah, uh, I, I don't think it's ever actually going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so so instead of talking about things that we may or may not ever do, uh, why don't we talk about something that we do every week, uh, a little bit of Star Trek trivia. I thought you'd never ask. Uh, this week we have a great team of TNG regulars behind the scenes. The story is by Hannah Louise Shearer, who we know from Coming of Age and We'll All Have Paris and uh, many more. Now, uh, she was around as a writer and a story editor for much of that time. Uh, Maurice Hurley kind of ushered this one in. And he liked the premise of sending a message to the emptiness of space and actually getting a reply. 
The script is by Melinda M. Snodgrass, who we talked about getting her start with Measure of a Man, one of those lucky stories of a person getting picked out of obscurity with an unsolicited script. And uh, Wienrich Kolbe is back as director, and we last saw his work on Where Silence Has Lease, and there will be much more of him in the future. Uh, Ken, I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago when Picard asked for tea, Earl Grey hot, and we had a, a discussion about said tea. But at the time, Captain Picard didn't actually get his tea. He got a potted plant. This time he gets his tea. Hmm. So it was kind of a watershed moment uh, for Star Trek. <laughs> Very important to note. Um, you may also notice that it kind of looks like the Shoreleaf Planet or some area of Griffith Park. Uh, but the outdoor holodeck scenes were actually shot near Thousand Oaks, California. And uh, all of that stuff was shot by second unit since they were up against some really serious deadlines. You had all the filming they had to do on the Enterprise. You had the planet set filming that they had to do, and you had outdoor scenes. So it's one of the rare occasions where that happened, where a, a different crew went out there with a couple of actors and a horse to get that done. Well, now, wait a minute. So this was not Omicron SETI 3? This was not Spin and Marty's Ranch? Uh, no. Ah, uh, that's no. too bad. I thought it was. Yeah. It looked like it. It had sort of it, that the, feel. The trees, yeah, the trees kind of look the same, right? Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah it, trees it, tend uh, to, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> well, but yeah I thought I thought they were back at. Uh, yeah. I thought maybe uh, some spores were going to jump out and uh, and grab the card. Right, uh, you you could only be so lucky, right? And by the way, uh, we, we just have to point out that uh, that that's not our uh, our boss and partner Rod Roddenberry sitting in ten forward about nineteen minutes into the show. Yeah, and don't um, tell it, him you think it is either, because it really <laughs> freaks him out. It is erroneously reported that that is a young Rod Roddenberry. And uh, and if you do the math, um, Rod Roddenberry would have been much younger than the guy sitting at the bar giving kind of a creepy painted on smile throughout that short scene. Which, which is, you know, why you might think it's Rod Roddenberry. I know, right? <laughs> but no, it's not him. Okay, I mean, it really is weird because you uh, should we should we say that we were under the impression briefly that we did think it was him? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, you you sent me that picture, and I was like, eh, it kind of looks like him, but boy, he's changed somewhat since he was that age. It's a little weird. It, yeah. it, there's definitely a similarity. Yeah, and and he was much more blonde at yeah. the time. Yeah, but no, that that was not. Plus, the, the kid the, at the, the bar looks like a punk. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, <laughs> Have you thought the, about who's going to replace me? By the way. Uh, no, no, but I, I'm, I'm working on it now, actually. I'm, uh, I'm putting that call out yeah, on Twitter. Might as well. Might yeah. as well. Uh, but no, it's not Rod. It is an uncredited actor in that scene. Um, but let's talk about credited actors. Uh, Nicholas Cascone, or Cascone, who plays Ensign Davies, has been working as an actor pretty consistently since the 80s. Uh, he'll have one more Star Trek credit under his belt later. And uh, he also appeared in the movie Titanic. Uh, pretty cool. And, and Ken, he's in one episode of Moonlighting, which means we'll need to talk about him again in the year 2035. Wow, I guess we might need to get him on. Yeah, yeah, we might. Yeah. We might. Um, Anne Gillespie, who plays Ensign Hildebrand, appears as a recurring character on Deep Space Nine in a, in a handful of episodes. Uh, but I found it most interesting that she's one of the few actors who is a semi-regular on the original Beverly Hills 90210. She played Kelly's mother and then a regular on the reboot in 2008. And uh, finally, 
we have Nikki Cox, who plays Sarjenka in this episode. She would have been about 10 years old when this show was made. Um, she had just a handful of credits at the time. Uh, one of the more interesting, I think, is that she was in Moonwalker with Michael Jackson. She was one of the kids who was dancing with Michael Jackson. Um, she became much better known, though, through the sitcom world, uh, through a show called Unhappily Ever After, which was kind of a, well, not kind of, it definitely was a knockoff of Married with Children. She was the analog to the uh, Christina Applegate, Kelly Bundy character on that show in this show, Unhappily Ever After. She went on to do much more comedy on TV, like the show Norm with Norm MacDonald and her own show called Nikki. And um, while working on Unhappily Ever After, she was dating and slash engaged to Bobcat Goldthwait, who was a director on that show. And uh, later on, she married comedian Jay Moore in 2006, and he actually legally changed his name to Jay Ferguson Cox to take her last name. How wonderful to hear that even in the faraway future, the art of letter writing is not dead. What scintillating missives these must be. Let us let Ken tell us more. Prologue. The Enterprise is headed to the Sulkundi Drama Sector. It's the first time the Federation has been there in person, though unmanned probes show geological instability on all five of the system's planets. Captain Picard, meanwhile, is headed to the holodeck to go horseback riding. He and Counselor Troy talk about the captain. He likes the companionship of a horse, though he's not into puppies and kittens. Betazoids can't deal with animals because they lose themselves in the animal's thoughts. Picard doesn't get to go horseback riding, though. He's called to the bridge to look out the window. These planets are really breaking down. In the last 150 years, one has busted itself up into an asteroid belt. And the one Captain Picard has been called to see is one giant molten mess. Last time probes were here, they had a thriving ecosystem. Act 1. Riker has an idea for bringing young Ensign Crusher along in his training. He's decided to put Wesley in charge of a planetary mineral survey. Dr. Pulaski is concerned that they might be pushing him too hard and too fast, but everyone gets on board with the plan. The survey is important. Plus, he'll have a team, which means he'll have to learn command. Our little boy is growing up. On the bridge, Data is studying every type of frequency that might come the ship's way. Nothing he was supposed to do, just a personal project. Worf approves, especially since it would reveal both naturally occurring and artificial signals that he'd like Data to keep his science projects off the floor. Wesley is working on his mineral survey team, but he's concerned that everyone on it will be older than he is. How is he supposed to command them? Riker says, you just do. Good talk. Wes meets Ensign Davies, tells him he'll be on the team. Davies shows signs of being a pain. He expresses concern about Crusher putting a married couple on the team. Don't worry, though. If you have any problems, tag me in and I'll take over. Crusher says he thinks he can handle it, but thanks. Commander Data's listening post is still rolling, though there's suddenly something to which to listen. Data picks up one of those artificial signals about which Worf had wondered. What seems to be a child's voice asks, Is anybody out there? Data responds, Yes. Act 2. About to meet his team as a group for the first time, Wes is having trouble with the whole command idea. Dr. Pulaski gives him a pep talk. You'll be swell. You'll be great. Gonna have all these worlds on a plate. Now get in there, you big nut. 
Captain's Log. It's been six weeks that the Enterprise has been studying this system, and each of the planets shows the same sort of seismic instability. Wes's team is hard at work, though Ensign Davies misses a metaphorical spot. Wes would like an spectrogram on the third planet, but... Look, we know what it's going to say, says Davies, and besides, it would take at least five hours to set up the sensors. Why don't we skip it? Wes says he'd like to be thorough, but Davies says, look, there's being thorough and there's wasting time. It's also the mark of a good officer to know the difference, says Davies, in a condescending way. Oh, I'm sorry, condescending means talking down to people. Wes backs down. No spectrogram. On the bridge, Data's science experiment continues. Looking into tectonic plate activity on Drama 4, the android officer gets about as agitated as he ever gets. He goes to the holodeck to talk to Captain Picard, who's finally getting in that horseback riding he's been trying to do. Data explains that he's been in contact with Sarjanka, a child of Drama 4, for eight weeks. The inhabitants of Drama 4 know nothing of interstellar life, but Data hasn't violated the Prime Directive exactly since... He's never said exactly that he's in space. But Sarjenka's planet is breaking up like the rest of the planets in the Drama system. He would like to figure out a way to stop that from happening, and that would violate the Prime Directive. You know, unless Captain Picard can find another way around it. Picard tells Data to call a meeting of senior staff to talk the issue over. Also, all communication between Data and Sarjenka must cease. Act 3 West pulls Commander Riker from, seriously, a date in 10 Ford to talk over his command issues. He wanted an spectrogram, but Ensign Davies talked him out of it. But he really wanted it. He might even need it. How does he order Davies, who's older and more experienced than West, to do what he wants? Riker says, you just do. Good talk. Riker is then called to the meeting in the captain's quarters while West tells Davies he wants that spectrogram. You got it, says Davies. And West learns a valuable lesson. Command is about commanding. They should have a name for that. Senior staff is assembled in the captain's quarters for a discussion and snacks. Data and Picard let them in on what's been going on. No point in discussing how wrong Data was. How do they save Data's friend? Or can they, without violating the Prime Directive? Worf says it's not possible. Sarjenka and the people of her planet will have to die. Pulaski says she can't go for that. Riker says maybe Sarjenka and her people were fated to die, though Troy and LaForge argue maybe the Enterprise was fated to save them. In the end, Picard decides that they have to let nature run its course. He orders Data to cease all communication with Sarjenka, which I could have sworn he had ordered before... But apparently he really means it this time. Data goes to officially isolate and delete Sarjanka's frequency from being received by the Enterprise. But there's Sarjanka's voice for all the senior staff to hear, pleading with Data for help and to talk to her. She's afraid. Picard may not be good with kids, but having heard the call for help, he can't let this one die. Data's whisper from the dark has now become a plea and they cannot turn their backs. Act 4. They figured out what's causing all the planets in the Drama system to go haywire. Actually, the Mineral Survey team figured it out. We could go into why, but why? The real point is that Wesley's insistence on the spectrogram led to the answer. So, can they reverse the process in time to save Drama 4? 
His team says they'll get cracking. Meanwhile, Data has figured out the safest place for Sarjanka and her family to go in the midst of the tectonic instability. Picard tells Riker to tell Data to tell Sarjanka where she needs to be, but atmospheric interference makes communication impossible. Data asks for permission to beam down and tell her where she needs to go. Picard, Riker, and Data try to skirt the issue, and then they just give up. Data can beam down and give Sarjanka the message, but if he sees anybody else, he's to beam out immediately. When he beams down, though, he doesn't see anyone. Sarjanka and her family are gone. Outside, it's pretty much hell. Fire, hot winds, lava. Like the planet at the end of Revenge of the Sith, which is basically like hell. Suddenly, a little girl-type humanoid comes running into the room. This is Sarjanka, and Data introduces himself. Her family has evacuated, but she's come back to get her transmitter. She couldn't bear the thought of Data calling her and not getting a response. The way she's been calling Data and not getting a response. Ouch. Things outside have gotten bad. Sarjanka won't make it back to her family. Data decides the best thing to do is to take her back with him to the Enterprise. Act 5. Aboard the Enterprise, Sarjanka is super spooked. She's fine as long as she's with Data, so Data takes her to the bridge. Picard tells Troy to take Sarjanka to sickbay, but Sarjanka is freaked out. Data says he can do his job and keep her with him. His job, by the way, doing something sciency to save Drama 4. You'll be shocked to find it works. Sarjanka has learned a lot. She's seen a lot. Sarjanka knows too much. Killing her is obviously not an option. Picard has a better plan anyway. Pulaski is to erase her memory from the point that Data and she started communicating onward. Data is sad that she will not remember him, but he will remember Sarjanka. And in all of this, Picard says Data has moved closer to humanity. The end. Hey, they did something science-y. Something science-y. I was so glad to hear that. They that... found things under the stuff, and they yeah. sent a vibration, and there were probes, and, you know. And, and probes uh, are kind of a, a thing for aliens to do. And in this case, we're the aliens, so right. really an alien probe hitting the planet, mm-hmm. not overly surprising. And then science happened. And, <laughs> and it worked. Oh, no miracle occurred. No, no, no. Was, you know, we start here, then science Mm-hmm. Yeah, then the end. Yeah, yeah. Then the end. Um, by the way, I, I mentioned that the uh, the holodeck stuff was second unit, but I, I just want to now say kind of in review of the show, I'm really glad to see some location shooting mm-hmm. on Next Gen again because, you know, the last – there have been others, but but I would say one of the most memorable was in Justice when they were at the water reclamation plant um, up in, uh, in the valley. And um, – it just lends a broader sort of perspective. Mm-hmm. It makes the worlds bigger that Star Trek has. And um, and then because they are suspending disbelief on the show that they are in a holodeck, we get to suspend disbelief even better that, yeah. uh, that that's what's happening. So I, I really like that. I thought that was cool. And there were good moments for Picard. It was a very refreshing shot. I mean, it's interesting mm-hmm. to see that the camera is tracking him riding yes. a horse at yes. not quite full gallop, but a decent trot. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it is it's weird. But the second or third time I watched that scene this week, it really felt like a breath of fresh air. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's very rare that we get tracking shots on the show that aren't yeah. limited to, oh, about, you know, five feet on the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got to say there was something that was funny about that whole exchange, though, when Troy and Picard are talking over um, why she doesn't like to go horseback riding. She says mm-hmm. that she prefers a mode of transportation that doesn't have a mind of its own. Mm-hmm. She's on the Enterprise. Now, maybe maybe she's not really aware of you know everything that happened with Moriarty, even though she did say that she was feeling a presence coming from the holodeck, and she knows that that whole thing was made by hmm. the Enterprise, and, and certainly a good thing that nobody ever told her the story of the practical Joker. Yeah, right. But I wonder right. if she would ever leave any planet ever again, if she had any idea of just really how little control she and everyone around her actually have <laughs> of this giant metal thing that's, you know pretending yeah. to let them fly it through space who actually knows for sure well remember Jordy said that about 90 percent of the enterprise is controlled by the computer and you and i thought he was off by about 9.9 percent yep yep pretty yeah. much yep yeah. you get the wheel and you get the pedal and that's <laughs> it and everything else the ship's just kind of doing on its own it well, seems. even then, it, it's sort of like one of those kitty cars where the kid has the wheel and the pedal but really there's an adult standing behind it pushing it along <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Either that or sort of like, um, sort of like bumper cars. You, so mm-hmm. you got the wheel, you got the pedal, but you've also got the strap, and somebody could just flip a switch, and all, <laughs> all these cars just stop. Exactly. Yeah, I like um, our Enterprise a lot. I do a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. Um, last week, I think it was, I, I talked about the idea of people on the Enterprise kind of being orphans and, and not not literal, but also kind of figurative orphans that, that this is this is a line of work that you can go into if you are not particularly concerned about a family life. And I talked about Wesley. And even though, yes, his mother is alive and we know where she is, she chose to take this job and Wesley chose to stay on the Enterprise. Um, I, I there was something about that scene where you're in the conference room and there's everybody on the senior staff talking about Wesley. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, okay, I I was not particularly a a very angsty teenager. Right. But I thought that's the kind of thing that would make me a particularly angsty teenager is just knowing that there's this room full of like 10 adults who are just not only talking about the job, but just like, well, you know, here's – uh, here's how we think that this applies to his maturity. And, right. and he's not a part of the conversation. Right. <laughs> you know, I just thought that it would be incredibly bizarre and infuriating to know that that was going on. Well, okay, a few things. First of all, right. it apparently would make you angsty because there were nothing like 10 people in that room. I want to well, say it, it was five it, or it, six. It was, you know, uh, well, it was all it was the entire senior staff. It was the entire senior staff. That's true. The other thing I will say, though, is he has he is an ensign in this. We've discussed it before. Militaristic, if not actual military organization. People are going to be talking about him all the time. Right. Without his well, knowledge or knowing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But, but again, it's not just the job. It's it's like then suddenly the job becomes the parent. And that's what's so weird to me. Well, that's what he signed on for. When he when he did not leave, you know, when when uh, when Dr. Crusher left, mm-hmm. this is what he's there for now. I know they had this discussion in the first episode of season two. It doesn't make it any less weird. All right. If you say so. It's an accepted weird, though. That'd be like if we were watching the original series and you're like, so what's up with the pointy ears? And I'd be like, dude, we're in season three now. The pointy ears are going to stay. All right. I'm just anyway, I'm not. But I'm just uh, OK. So the thing that struck me as odd about that whole exchange is uh, 
Picard, when he's first, you know, when, when Wesley first gets the mineral survey assignment, mm-hmm. Picard tells Wesley that he appreciates an officer that will admit ignorance and seek help more than an officer that will cover his ignorance and uh, blunder blindly forward, right? Mm-hmm. That is until, like, like, the life and death of a planet are on the line. Because yeah. because yeah. then, you know, Picard's like, so can you stop this planet from blowing up? And Wesley says, I think so. And Picard <laughs> says, hey, 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 none of this mamby-pamby, I think so crap, okay? Can you or can't you? Now, I, I think, honestly, one of the best management lessons that was learned or one of the best, you know, dealing with management lessons that was learned was actually his little scientist, not little scientist, she's average-sized person, right. the scientist on his team going, we'll get to work on it. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Picard said, yeah. can you do this or can't you? And she said, we'll get started. She didn't say yes. <laughs> she didn't say no. She was like, I, I can't even answer that question right now because I'm already doing it. Right. Maybe. Right. <laughs> it was yeah, kinda... no, Picard, and we've seen this on more than a few occasions where, where Picard just cuts somebody off like, no, I want an answer now. Yeah. You know, there, there is no room for I don't know. Right. Which, well. I mean, there is know, when it's not important, but when it's important. <laughs> yeah, yeah but this is still this is still a a uh, it's not a research vessel. It was an exploratory vessel, right. and part of exploration, part of research, part of science is I don't know. Mm-hmm. So we have to get more information before we can know. So you say this isn't a, a research vessel? The, the the Enterprise is a transformer without actually changing shape. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's running defense, sometimes it's on offensive missions, sometimes it's research, sometimes it's science. It's 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 anything you need it to be. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's got a little it's, bit of a D and D thing going there. Yeah, um, I, I do love how we were talking about the the relative sentience of the Enterprise computer. I like how there's the moment where Wesley is standing in the corridor mm-hmm. and and he he's trying to kind of work up the nerve to go into the room with uh, the other two ensigns that are on his team. And um, and he hasn't gone any. It's just sort of pacing back and forth, and he'll walk up to the door, and then he'll stop, and he'll walk back. And I love how those automatic doors are smart enough to not open yeah. while Wesley is hesitating outside. That's interesting. Because he, you just see, he walks right up to it, and he's like, no, nah, I can't go in. Yeah. And then he steps back. And who is it that catches him in the hallway? Is it Pulaski. Uh, it is Pulaski, yeah. yeah. And then when she kind of gives him a little bit of a pep talk, then he turns around and walks right up to the door, and the door opens. Do you remember the uh, elevators in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that it can actually see the future? <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, yes. it's kind of like that, yeah. maybe. Maybe yeah. They, they have a little bit of ESP. Yeah, they, they, they must. They know, you know, he doesn't really want to go through this door. Yeah. Can they tell the difference, though, when you don't really want to go through the door, but you have to anyway? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. or, or, is it like yeah. a, or is it like a fail-safe that's all over the Enterprise where it's like, mm, I don't think you're ready to go in here. <laughs> We're going to hold that's, off on you. It's a good thing they're not on a, uh, on a thinking vessel. Actually, doors <laughs> – I had a question about a door. Mm-hmm. Actually, I had a few questions about the Draymond Society, Draymond 4 anyway, because we don't know about, you know, 1 through 3, and we don't know about 5. Well, one of them is an asteroid belt now, but otherwise we don't know a lot. Right. Um, about the Draymond specifically, uh, what in their racial or cultural history made the forehead carapace and the exceedingly long pinky finger natural <laughs> evolutionary traits? Uh-huh. This is what yeah. I wondered. Yeah. Um, how do they have the technology to make doors that literally dematerialize and then rematerialize at the touch of a hand, but uh, not think to you know ever look up? Mm-hmm. Like at the stars, like look up past the sunrise and the sunset. Uh, the big question I have, though, about the door specifically, how do you walk through that door? 
Well, I, well, how do you mean? You you put your hand up, the door disappears, and okay. you walk out. Okay. Yeah. Oh, ah, okay. But what's uh-huh. triggering the door to like close again? Right. Oh, so oh, you well, touch I, I, the door to open it, and then you yeah. put your hand back up to get the door to close again. Mm-hmm. I would think if you touch the door to open it. Mm-hmm. That as soon as your nose like crosses whatever plane that is, the door's just gonna close again. And either you're gonna break your nose or you're gonna cut your <laughs> nose off. But if you don't touch the door first, like are you just supposed to like walk through the door like with the kind of faith that uh, it's gonna open because it's gonna open because it's going to know that right. I'm gonna walk through it. Kind of right. like the psychic doors on the Enterprise. You have very smart doors. And in fact, if you can say anything about the Dramans, they, yeah. they have the smartest door. Like these people, they, they don't have space travel. Right. They, they don't communicate with us, other space travelers. Right. Uh, they, they have magic technology that will materialize and dematerialize solid objects, though not apparently themselves. They, they do all, <laughs> so they can do all of this stuff. And now they're going to be known throughout the galaxy. It's like, well, the Dramans, they're not good for much. Yeah. And their doors are great. Door maker to the stars and to yeah. the stars, if they understood that, you know, there were actually stars in the stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that scene with, uh, with Wesley talking to Ensign Davies and, uh, and, and uh, Hildebrand, for that matter. And they're like, oh, but you know what? It takes five hours. Yeah. To set up the machinery to do an iconospectro science words. Um, <laughs> iconospectrogram. Come on, dude. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, yeah. I, I, I but, co- actually, not icono. It's Ico. Ico, Ico, Ico spectrogram. Icogram for short. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, but Picard says in one of the voiceovers when we come back from commercial that they've been there for six weeks and in then, that system. And then we can assume that they're there for another two because Data says that he's been in touch with Shazenka for eight weeks by the mm-hmm. time he takes that to Picard. Right. So they've right, been there right. for two months now. Yeah. So five hours. I know. It's a lot of time, though, dude. Instant Davies is lazy. It's a lot of time to do one thing. You know, we've never actually addressed how long a shift is on the Enterprise. Oh, it's just constant. But you think? Because <laughs> yeah, it could it be like 45 minutes. <laughs> we, we don't know. We don't actually know what constitutes a full workday on the Enterprise. Oh, five hours. It's going to take me six days. <laughs> five hours? That's, <laughs> that's like three hours of overtime. Are you sure you want to pay that? I got to get in my holodeck time. <laughs> I got to go hang out and 10 forward for no apparent reason. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. But the team are good with Wesley in charge and, and good for him. That, yeah. that was a good moment. You know? Wes in charge was actually going to be one of the spinoffs. And then oh, you know, yeah. Charles yeah. in charge actually yeah. happened a few years earlier and they realized that might seem derivative. Uh, it's weird to me, the change in Pulaski here, and it's not an important change, but mm-hmm. it's, it's worth noting. Um, when they're talking about whether or not they should save Sarjenka and her family and her planet, by the way, mm-hmm. her argument is uh, data's friend is going to die. And that means something. And Worf says to data, to which Pulaski replies, does that invalidate the emotion? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the what? Because he's a machine, right? He can't have emotions. Can he, Dr. Pulaski, from early in season two? Mm-hmm. Later in season two, she actually seems, you know, cool with the fact that, you know, his zeros and ones are coming into something like compassion. And that and that means a lot to Dr. Uh, Dr. Catherine Pulaski. It was a good scene. That was, that was my favorite scene in the show. Well, um, it's, it's the scene in the show, isn't it? it? Well, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, we talked about the enterprise computer being sentient and and the doors knowing when you're going in and all that stuff. And, and I love that little moment with, uh, chief O'Brien. 
mm-hmm. the transporter room. But but I have a new theory that I want to float out to you and to our listeners that I'm starting to think that Chief O'Brien is a creation of the Enterprise computer in the form of a holographic uh, human being. Really? Uh, yeah, because he, he literally just activates anytime somebody opens the door to the transporter room. Tra- <laughs> Nobody has transported that we know of in going on eight weeks, eight weeks, nobody has transported. And yet you open the door and there he is standing at the controls, ready to go. Well, he is transporter chief. He he is, but there's nobody coming into that room. Yeah. At all. So I I think that it's like... um, I, I was very impressed uh, when I was very little and we got like a, a pantry door or a closet door that had the automatic light switch yeah. thing. So yeah. you open it and the button's built into the door. And I think that's now how Chief O'Brien has activated the doors open and boom, he's there. Oh, mm. look, we're ready to beam down. We didn't even call down to say we're on our way. You know, the only problem I have with that idea is if that were the case, then I would expect him every time he, he uh, you know, pops up to say, uh, please state the nature of your teleporting emergency. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know why I think that that would be something that he might say. That's 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 weird. That, but, but hang that, on that to that. A, you think yeah. I should? Yeah, hang on to that. I'll, you, I'll you jot might, that down. Yeah, you might be able to use it. Later. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was interesting, actually, that Picard orders Riker to handle the beam down himself. Mm-hmm. Are they how? So what's the plan here? (laughs) Right. Because they have captain's logs. They're going to the drama system. Right. And then they're there for like eight weeks. But they're not going to tell anybody that they uh, beamed uh, data down, which I'm assuming means they don't want Starfleet to know, which I'm assuming means they're not going to tell Starfleet about saving the planet, which I'm assuming means that everything that Wesley's team did is off the record, which I'm assuming means that they're going to try to like somehow hide everything that happened for, for this two months. They're already working on retrofitting uh, torpedoes to do the work. That, that that work is already in process. So yep. if you're just talking about from a pure inventory point of view, yep. <laughs> you've got some answers. Yeah. So know. so I'm looking through your uh, for, through your captain's log here. And uh, thank you for printing it out, by the way. But there seem to be uh, like like uh, these two months are just gone. Right. Can you right. tell me what happened there? No, I can't. Okay. And uh, and the torpedoes, because it looks like about 16 torpedoes missing. Can you tell me what happened there? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Could Data tell me? Hmm. <laughs> that could be a problem. So he's going to be unavailable for questioning for the rest of uh, – for the rest. Right. Right. Um, now, there's a moment. Uh, with Picard because we know that Picard doesn't like kids on the bridge. Mm-hmm. We get that because yep. he, you know, had that initial run in with Wesley, but now he's warmed up to Wesley. Um, but he is seriously about to pop a vein in his head when Sarjenka comes on. If you look at him, and I, I, watching that scene several times, he, he's just, he's almost shaking and he's just talking to Riker. Like, like this is a, a multi-headed beast that just crawled out from under his bed. He, he's terrified of this kid. And I just thought, you know, th- there's still a part of the job that involves seeking out new life and new civilizations. And the whole reason that they are there mm-hmm. is because of the message from this girl. So it, at least there should be a little bit of curiosity that this is the, the catalyst that kicked off this whole story. Uh well, let's go back to the plausible deniability that we were just talking about 30 seconds ago. Sure. So, so now so now everybody on the bridge has seen this kid. The kid has seen the bridge. Everybody between the transporter room and the bridge has seen this kid. 
You know, what, mm-hmm. what, what's mm-hmm. the thing? Uh, two people can keep a secret if one of them's dead. <laughs> right, At the end of this yeah. episode, Picard really yeah. has to blow up the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if he wants to keep this off, uh, if he wants to keep this off Starfleet's uh, radar. I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, hey, and, and is this a new thing now? Uh, where we have a, a thing in sickbay that can erase memories, because if so, I don't know if I want to serve on that ship. It's and, a very old uh, thing, actually. It's a Tantalus device, right? Uh, oh, <laughs> man. Except oh. now in liquid form. Dr. Tristan Adams. Yeah, yeah. Paging, paging Dr. Adams. And then whatever they used on, um, on Lord Garth. Lord Garth! Whatever they used on <laughs> Lord Garth to get him, you know, back to yeah. rights. Uh, uh, that, that, that was a thing as well. I was actually me. I was actually very curious about So in Sickbay, Sarjenka finds an Elenin singing stone, I guess it's called, on Pulaski's mm-hmm. desk. Totally an important thing. Yeah. Except that Data leaves it with Sarjenka when he drops her off at her mm-hmm. house on her planet after they've erased her memory, right? Mm-hmm. Um now, Pulaski explains to Data to remember you and the ship would complicate her future. She has to be the person that she was born to be. So what we're going to do is we're going to erase all memories that include you, which is going to include like right up to the run up of her planet exploding, right? Mm-hmm. Or breaking down. So she's not going to remember that, even though everybody else on her planet is going to. Um, and she also uh, is going to have this uh, extraterrestrial rock. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's good that they saved the planet and they did technically save Sarjanka's life. Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% certain that they've actually put her, and maybe I should have left this for the next segment. I apologize. I'm not really 100% certain that the, I, I don't think she is now going to be living her life the way she was meant to live her life. She'll live her life, but, yeah. you know, she could also be the crazy person in whatever village. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because she's the only one who doesn't remember. Plus, she's got that rock that, like, you know, makes a noise when you hold it, and it makes mm-hmm. a different noise when you hold it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure the extent of the favors that they've done for Sarjenka. Forgive me, but applying the misnomer pen pals to two people talking to each other on a subspace walkie-talkie really bothers me. There should be writing. Pen is in the title. You know who should have thought of this? The writer. Every now and then, Ken, uh, like last week with the Icarus Factor, I feel like the parallels between different characters and, and different plot lines are a little too on the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, like in the Icar- Icarus Factor, we have, okay, well, here's this violent Klingon ritual that Worf has to go through. Oh, and look, here's this violent ritual that Riker is about to go through because that's what they're both going to do. And, and in this one, I appreciated... It wasn't particularly subtle, but but I appreciated the holodeck scene with the horse more in retrospect after seeing the episode play out. Uh, Picard has a great line in there. He doesn't want to get attached or, quote, anthropomorphize anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it says something about uh, Picard's kind of cool scientific detachment from what's going on. And it says something about then his abil- ability to objectively size up the situation with Sarjenka. Here's an alien being. Yes, it's a living thing, but I'm not about to anthropomorphize her and say that I know best what she should do. I know best what the outcome should be here. Um, 
Well, wait a minute. It's not anthropomorphizing her. Because, well, yeah. I mean, she, you know, she has, I mean, she's alive. She has feelings. She can communicate. Well, she she's alive. She can communicate. She's not human. And we don't know that we can necessarily apply human emotions, human logic, human rationality, any of those things. Sure we do. We know that now, based on what Data is talking about. What he doesn't want to anthropomorphize is the numbers. He doesn't want to think about it. He doesn't yeah. want, I mean, he wants to think about it, but to an extent. I mean, he was willing to let her die until he heard her voice, which, I mean, mm-hmm. which, I mean, it's sort of, yeah, I mean, he, what he really doesn't want to anthropomorphize is, is the situation or the philosophical discussion. Yeah, I mean, until that point, all he knows is that this is a thing. It's a living thing, but this is a thing. Right. And, and even after that point, when he hears the voice, well, well, again, like, what, what if this is Balak? You know, what, what if this is a, a little tiny person with the, the look and the sound of a little tiny human, right? but really has tremendous power that could disable your ship, you know? So yeah. there, there, there's a, a reasonable uh, version of this that he keeps his distance purely out of self-preservation and out of the fact that he doesn't have all the information. So I, I, kind, of, I kind of get that. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting here is that there's an examination of leadership, which I, I mentioned earlier when we have that scene with everybody sitting around the conference table talking about Wesley. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that examination was a bit academic. Like, I, I like the discussion that Riker has with Wesley when they're in 10 forward. Mm-hmm. And I like that Wesley is intimidated with authority because that actually plays out as a pretty – like it's very simplistic in the show, but it's still a realistic thing for him to get over and for him to experience. Um, what I had a hard time buying in the scene was just the way that they talked about it, because it was almost like somebody on the writing staff was reading from a book on on leadership competency, <laughs> you know. And and Riker is just telling him, "Well, you will learn this because it will help you with self confidence. So go right, <laughs> you know." It, it didn't feel as um it didn't feel much like natural conversation but i thought it was definitely a better way to have that conversation than the uh than the don't do drugs speech that we got in season one say yeah no it's not, i mean it's i don't want to boil it down to fake it till you make it but i mean mm-hmm. basically you, you you do the uncomfortable thing until the uncomfortable thing becomes comfortable in a way Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you actually analyze, you know, their whole situation, though, it, it, it is kind of interesting and they don't analyze it. So there's little point in us analyzing it. It's not really <laughs> it's not really a central point of the show, I don't think. But Wes is like, so I wanted to do this, you know, extra the, the icogram and he didn't want to do the icogram. And I, you know, what if I'm wrong and we didn't need the icogram anyway? And Riker's like, ah. Well, sometimes you're going to be wrong. Yeah, but what if I'm wrong and and somebody dies as a result? Yeah. And Riker says, well, here's the question you have to ask yourself. What would Picard do? I'm trying to remember. Has Picard ever made a decision that got anybody killed? Has Picard ever made a... Really? Really? That's what we're going to do. It it kind of surprised me. (laughs) Well, but here's the thing. It it, it is central to the topic in this episode because mm-hmm. Picard at that very moment, well, not that very moment, but within the fabric of this episode is trying to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Do I let these people die or do I not? You know, right. do, no. do I, do I take one course of action or another course of action? Then here's Wesley thinking, well, I could either get this wrong or 
more wrong <laughs> or yeah. maybe I get lucky and it comes out right. Here's what I'm saying, though. Jack Crusher, we yeah. are given to understand, died because of a decision that Picard made. Yeah. Do you really want to say to Jack Crusher's kid, oh, just think <laughs> about what Picard would do? <laughs> He'd kill my dad. That's what <laughs> exactly. Oh, you know what? I will think about that, Commander Riker, right after I drink as much <laughs> synthahol as I can find over at that bar. <laughs> right. Unless they've got the good stuff. Uh-huh. I don't yeah, know. It just it struck me. I mean, it was. I mean, it was interesting, and it certainly it makes sense. And and it, it's a good payoff. Yeah, it's yeah. a little too bonk bonk on the head, but it's a good payoff that you know Davies, who had been against it, has to sit there and acknowledge, "Wow, if I hadn't done the thing that you know young Commander Crusher wanted me to do, uh, we never would have found this." Which means they never would have saved the planet. Yeah. At the same time, I'm just not sure that you know saying, "Well, what would the guy who made the decision that got your father killed decide?" <laughs> 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 Good question. Thank you. Thank you. You've given me more to think about than I wanted. Well, let's talk about the real meat of the episode here. We get to violate the Prime Directive in ways that we never have before. And I, I, I love the debate, you know, especially with Worf and Pulaski kind of playing the two sides of this. Um, this is what's good about Star Trek. Not that there is an easy right answer. Mm -hmm. but that we get to keep playing with the idea of ethical or moral choices. Mm -hmm. We talked, I, I think back during like season one of the original series, we, we talked a very long time ago about that old intellectual exercise. If a train were approaching and you could throw the switch to avoid killing five people versus one person, what would you do? Okay. Right. Well, I, I, I choose the, you know, the least destructive path. Okay. Well, what if that one person were your mother or your father or your brother, or somebody close to you? And then the game changes and there is no right answer. There's only the ability to talk about how we might behave. And, mm -hmm. and, and it is one moral decision more moral or less moral than the other. And that's what's interesting about shows like this. Um, data cuts to the core and sides with Pulaski. It's about the people, no matter how many, it, it's about the fact that these are people who have lives. Um, and Picard, I, I thought this is what was so cool. Picard changes the conditions of the debate. What if it's war? What if it's slavery? It's about protecting us to keep us from acting out emotionally or irrationally when we size up a situation. But then Picard hears the voice mm -hmm. and he has this emotional change. And I wondered why does Picard compromise so fast? Does he truly think that the conditions have changed now that he perceives Sarjenka's message as a call for help? Because Sarjenka doesn't know that she is specifically asking for help from this passing starship that even has the ability to help. It's just a sort of well, I, I, I said something once. I heard from Data. I don't know who or what Data is. I don't know where Data is. I don't know what Data's abilities are. I just said help. Mm -hmm. and, and then I got a reply. So for Picard, I, I really wondered about that change because it, it seemed – it didn't seem too sudden. And, and it seemed real. It certainly seemed genuine. But everything changed at that moment. And then all the, all the intellectualizing, all the, all the argumentation went out the window. And it just became about, well, crap, here's somebody in need 
And no matter what now, Prime Directive is out the window. We got to help. Yeah. Even though they go about covering their tracks. (laughs) (laughs) Uselessly, uselessly covering their tracks. Well, we don't know if it's useless or not. Yeah, well, I, I would say that it's useless because they're they're already working on torpedoes. They're working on all this other stuff. Yeah, no, they're going to have to find a way to cover that up. And anybody who's not yeah. on board, they're going to have to kill. Oh, yeah. that was a tragic accident, sadly, <laughs> right after we left the Draymond system. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, there was uh, – I love the fact that Picard basically and, – and it's good that he didn't go through and do it with everyone. But I love the fact that Picard hit Pulaski – in a way that she had to sort of step out and think. I mean, she's a healer, right? Yeah. Which which kind of ultimately means she is a fixer. And so if there is a disease ravaging this planet, you know, she, she's a doctor. She wants to fix it. Yeah. If, uh, if, if there is this natural disaster and they have the ability to fix it or this impending natural disaster and they have the ability to fix it, she wants to fix it. And so he has to take her to a place where where she looks at it through a different lens. So what if it's war? What if it's slavery? And automatically she's like, well, no, we can't interfere then because you know people are choosing at that point. Then 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 people are involved in in a way that they can control, and so we have to be hands off. And while I'm glad that she did not, that Picard, excuse me, did not then go through to everybody and go, and you, what if it was a this thing? And you, what if it was a this thing? I did wonder, though, if there was any part of the warrior that is Worf that would say, uh, well, no, that that we would do. <laughs> and, and I don't know what that would be exactly, but I did like the fact that he that he twisted it. And he pointed it out, too. He's like, okay, good. Now that we're all off of our moral certitude, yeah, uh, let's really talk about this. Because, I mean, they're, they're, they're not going to make the knee-jerk reaction. They're going to make he's not going to let them make the knee-jerk reaction anyway or take the knee-jerk reaction. They're, go- they're going to make an informed decision. I love the fact that Picard argues that the Prime Directive is not just there to protect the other culture and not just there to protect the future. It's there to protect the Federation from letting its emotions overwhelm its judgment. Mm-hmm. This is what I have said the Prime Directive actually is, I believe, since the first season of TOS, since we covered yeah. the first season of TOS. The Prime Directive is you lay out this you know system of this is who I say I'm going to be. This is what I say I am. And then you act like it, whether it's yeah. easy or not. And it goes right back to the Corbomite maneuver. They defeat Balok. Yay, they defeat Balok and they're leaving because there's nothing they want more than to be away from Balok, except then uh, then uh, Kirk is like, we got to go back and help that guy. Because yeah. that guy's hurt and that's who we say we are. So, you know, let's go back and help that guy. Um, it was interesting to hear the Prime Directive laid out because it seems to sort of be uh, touted by some fans of the show mm-hmm. and I'm not making fun of them, but it, it, or saying anything bad about them, but it seems to be sort of touted as this like high and mighty, like, Oh no, no we're going to let them evolve on their own. We're not going to interfere because it would be wrong for us to interfere because that might be bad for them. Well, I mean, it's actually, it's also a big CYA memo for everybody in the Federation, right? right? Make sure that you, that this doesn't come back and bite you. Um, in a way, this felt like another episode of Law and Order 1701D, especially <laughs> when it came down to um, Sarjanka's four-word question, whether that can be considered a call for help. Mm-hmm. Once Picard hears Sarjanka himself, he doesn't feel like they can turn away. And I'm wondering, is this because she's now more real to him or because he's interpreting it as help? Because she is, she never actually says the words, help me. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. So, I mean, the the prosecution could say she never once asked specifically or explicitly for help. 
even though there's, right. a, there's a plaintive tone to her voice that makes you think, well, I mean, obviously she's looking for help. She's asking for help. And if the request for help is implied, then are they compelled to help her? Because it's like that. It's like the um, what was the what was the the gigantic uh, drug dealer druggy episode where the oh uh, symbiosis symbiosis. It's like in symbiosis. Yeah. They asked specifically for help. Yeah, which is why they brought them aboard. Go the other way. The one with uh, Offenhouse and um, LQ Sonny Clemens. The neutral zone. The neutral zone. They didn't ask for help, but Data went ahead and helped them anyway. Because yeah. well, look, they would be alive if we just made them alive. So let's make them alive. And then Picard's like, why did you make them alive? Right, right. They right. were dead. And I was cool with that. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a dicey, it's a, it's a very dicey gray area in which, uh, in which we find them. But I well, love the fact I... that they're discussing it as analytically as they possibly can. Anybody who's letting emotion get the best of them, he's like, hey, hey cool your jets. Let's talk about it in these terms. And then they all have to go, oh, okay, yeah, in those terms, right. Then, of course, they hear the little girl's voice, and it's like, eh, well, <laughs> emotions yeah. on the table, everybody, so let's uh, let's fix this. Yeah, well, and that's why I, I pointed at that, that scene a little bit ago, because I, I just felt like, yeah, is that is that specifically the right thing that would make Picard totally turn around? Picard so far has not shown himself to be a real softy on emotional issues, particularly with children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Later in the episode, he, he's literally just going apoplectic at the idea that this child is on the bridge. Mm-hmm. But so I, I did wonder about that, but at least for everybody else in the room, they Pulaski in particular she's already had the emotional argument she's already like you said put herself in the position of the healer the fixer so now even Picard knows that hearing the voice has magnified that impression mm-hmm. um, but yeah I, I I like this take on the prime directive because it says that it says that you have to take a situation like this and actually think through um Riker says, well, if we could see every outcome, we would be gods, <laughs> you know, right. which they are not. Um, but it says that you have to sit through and think out logically what these outcomes are. Now, we're very lucky that we're on a starship full of extremely talented, smart, uh, thoughtful people who can sit in a room and get along with each other and have this high minded moral discussion. Maybe unlike Earth, which has billions of people on it who can't seem to agree on anything, <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> you know, take, take a situation like this and put it before Congress and say, OK, go and consider the moral and ethical outcomes of, of what you decide today, whether or not you interfere, or do something with this situation that's in another country. Um, so in another country, in our own country, well, in our own country, sure, sure, we, sure. I mean, and that's one of the things that I loved, honestly, about what Picard said was that the prime directive was there to protect them as well. Yeah. We got one of those. It's called the Constitution. Yeah. And the thing yeah. is, we, we, we sometimes and forgive me, it's actually called a, a whole bunch of laws in addition to the Constitution. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's called the legal system that we've set up. Um, it is fascinating how we will then. As our own government will employ people to tell us how we can get through or around this thing that we've set up to do. Right. <laughs> but nice. not necessarily with the whole ethical moral side in mind, but just, no, seriously, are you sure that word means what that means? You know, yeah. I mean, it, go, it honestly goes to something as silly as 
It depends on what your definition of the word is, is. I mean, yeah. we, we, we look for ways to justify what we want to do within the legal groundwork. And, the, and uh, what, what Picard is appealing to is, is the best that the Prime Directive can be for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we aren't necessarily those people. But, you know, it's not the 24th century yet, so give us time. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I did have to, go no, ahead. I'm go sorry. Ahead. No, you. No, I, I would say I, I had to ask myself if uh, if data was acting logically or emotionally. It's it, sort of like we're back where we were with Spock uh, when he would use logic or use the org chart to get what he wanted, mm-hmm. regardless of how it looked to others or or how appropriate it might be. Yeah. Um, so are we showing then that data has formed an, an an emotional bond with someone he doesn't know? in a way greater than he has with people he does know. Say so we, we know now that Data and, and LaForge are friends, mm-hmm. so there's a bond there, and, uh, and certainly in a greater way than uh, Picard would allow himself with a horse. Granted, a holographic horse, but any pet <laughs> for that matter. Right. Um, Made me miss Tango. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's been a while on that. Oh, yeah, I remember Tango's name. I don't remember what Good. episode we saw Tango in. <laughs> <laughs> it was the cage. I do remember. It Please was the cage. save your yes. letters. I have a, actually. I have another question about data, though. Yeah. So you're asking if he's acting logically. Mm-hmm. I'm actually wondering if he's acting nefariously. So 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 because mm-hmm. first of all, Picard says at the end of Act whatever, mm-hmm. you got to stop talking to Sarjanka. Yeah. And data's like, I, I, okay, I understand what you're saying, which is not actually saying he will. He's just saying, oh, yep, yeah. I, I, I get you. And so then they have the meeting later, and Picard says, you have to sever all contact with Sarjanka. Data's a machine. He has received this order before. If he is yeah. not following this order, then he's not going to follow the order now. But the other thing I'm trying to figure out is, he, he, like Picard says, you've you got to stop. And Data's like, okay, well, let me just go over here and turn off the radio where she's calling. Now, Data's a digital guy receiving digital information. Does he seriously have to hear her to know that he's isolating that frequency? For everyone in the room, the one that, okay. Well, that yeah. that that's what I'm saying. I think he's yeah, pull, yeah, I think yeah. he's pulling a fast one. I think he yeah. I think he is he's doing everything he can to try to help her. Mm-hmm. And so when Picard says turn off the radio, Data goes over and like tunes in the station that Picard doesn't want him to hear and turns it up really loud so that mm-hmm. he can be sure he's turning off the right radio. Apparently, seems like he's manipulating the situation, which is even beyond what Spock used to do on the org chart. Yeah. Spock is the guy that I was talking about a minute ago who like, okay, well, here's my framework. So how can I do what I want to do and technically not violate this framework? Um, uh, Data is going a little bit further than that, it seems. Yeah, I, I thought absolutely he was. Yeah. And um, that, that was it, – it, it could have played out a different way in which at the very beginning when it is revealed to the audience – Mm-hmm. That data has heard this initial plea. Right. Well, it seems like the first meeting where this is revealed to the other crew members, that message would have played. Like it, data's already said, mm-hmm. "Hey, here's what's happened." Right. So now I'm going to play this. But we have this debate about the prime directive before we know before we know that everybody else has heard that voice, which for dramatic purposes is actually pretty interesting in order to have that detached debate. And just say, what if it's emotional? What if it's logical? Debate, debate, debate. Then we get to kind of drive it home and put a put a, a name and a voice 
yeah. with you know, with the situation. So, yeah, I, I it it did make me wonder about data. You know, the, this wasn't particularly a data episode, but um, data is perhaps acting a little strangely. Picard says, "Hey, congratulations, you're being more human." Yeah, but yeah. you know what I found myself wondering actually. Because uh-huh. it does appear that Data has not only violated the Prime Directive, but that he's countermanded Picard's orders. Yeah. How do you punish an android? Well, exactly. At the end of this episode, <laughs> I thought, okay, we we violated the Prime Directive nine ways to Sunday. Yep. A- and we erased a child's memory later, so yeah. we're all good with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, how does this get reported in the captain's log? It doesn't. And... <laughs> And what does Data get? Just a slap on the wrist? Well, well, apparently he gets nothing. Picard yeah. gives him a pat on the back and says, good work, guy. You're, you're more and more human every day. And I thought, what if a lower crewman had kicked off the same chain of events? Mm-hmm. What, what, what if it was, we haven't met him yet, but what if it's uh, like a guy named Barkley who's somewhere That's a goofy below. name. There would never be a Barkley in Star Trek. What do you, that was the dog from Sesame Street for crying out loud. That's why I got it confused. Yeah. Oh, okay. What if it's some guy in the lower decks who, who's the, the ham radio operator? Teddy. That's data. <laughs> <laughs> I understand what you're saying, though. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. What if it was? What if it was not one of our senior staff? I feel like that did cook, this. I feel like the cook would not get a pat on the back and say, "Well done. You gave us all something to think about." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. I, you know, I actually was thinking though, like, how do you punish data? Could you? Could you? See, he doesn't even have emotions, though. I mean, would you, like, would you as Picard say, okay, feel bad for 48 hours? <laughs> or would you just say, okay, act like you feel bad for 48 right. hours? Because we can't tell the difference. Go sit in the corner and run a process over what you've done. I have submitted my email of resignation. The improper title of this episode has affected me greatly. Ken and John say they just need to check me out before I go, to make sure that I am okay. Well, it's that time of the show where we uh, end the show by asking questions about the messenger's morals and meanings and whether or not the episode that we've covered this week stands the test of time. Uh, The episode, of course, this week, John, Pen Pals. Uh, let me see if I can find a, a clever way to ask this. Oh, I got one. Okay. Is this episode anything to write home about? Oh, oh, I see what you did there. Ken. Yeah, it's because it's a well, pen pal, though well, generally speaking, your pen pal doesn't live at home. But, you yeah. know, not your home anyway. But Somebody pen pals, um, you want to do messages, morals, and meanings, or do you want to do whether it stands up? No, I, I want to do standing up. Okay. Holding up. Because I, I, I'll tell you this, it, it's definitely not a bad episode. Um mm-hmm. When I saw that this was coming up in the queue, what I thought was, oh, it's the one with the little orange girl. Okay, you and, need to stop doing that, dude. <laughs> well, you you treat thing. every episode like like an episode of uh, Seinfeld or Friends or something. The one with you know where this happens, or the one where that happens. I mean, they they oh, tend it, to be it, a it little bit like, more meaty than that. It's it like how we title our shows. That's true. Well, it's how we title <laughs> the supplementals. Yeah, yeah the one yeah. with that guy, the other one with that guy, the one with this other guy. Yeah. 
And occasionally but, but, we have a woman on as well. Hear my logic, though, because right. uh, the, the thing is this. I, I feel like if I were to get hung up on the idea of this is the one with a little orange girl and, mm-hmm. and maybe the makeup is good, maybe it's not. What, what's the deal with the cranium? What's the deal with the elongated finger? Yeah. It would be as bad as me getting hung up on what the hoarder looks like. And as we know, Devil in the Dark is a brilliant episode, incredibly well written. And if you show that to somebody and they don't get – the the emotional resonance of that episode and what it says about us, then then I'm sorry, you're hopeless. So I can say that this is not an amazing episode, but I'll definitely give it a pass because there's interesting ideas here. And, and we get a little more growth out of Wesley, certainly yep. more than we did in the Dauphin. Yep. Uh, we got to talk about leadership and we got to see leadership parallel in Wesley and in Picard. Mm-hmm. They both have decisions to make. They both have people they have to convince and they have to talk to. Um, there are very interesting ways to think about data here, too. Is this person, is Sarjenka really a friend? What, what does a friend mean, mean to data? And would he have an emotional reaction if he had just cut off communications and then the planet destroyed itself? Well, if he had done, as Picard said, said, okay, stop talking to her. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to do that the first time. And then we orbit around a little bit more. Oh, look, well, the planet is imploding. Um, at that point. You think they'd uh, stick around for that? Well, I don't know. But, but we know that at that point, the only people who know about what's going on are Data and Picard. Mm. This has not bubbled its way up to the senior staff yet. So maybe Picard could live with himself. Um, could Data – well, what, what is Data's reaction at that point? And, and, well, if I were to make a joke about it, I could say that this is the kind of thing that Data throws back into Picard's face later on. Like, oh, yeah, I remember that time we stuck by the Prime Directive and you let a planet, including a little child that I was communicating with, all die. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, I mean, you've now set a dangerous precedent of, you know, well, the Prime Directive is just a thing. Well, the Prime Directive is a thing, but the Prime Directive is a thing that can get debated. And yeah. that, that's what's interesting here, you know, and, and that's why I definitely say that the episode holds up, even if there are things about it that don't necessarily sit right. What about you? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's weird. This is a lot of times we find a lot to talk about in a particularly bad episode. Mm-hmm. We found a lot to talk about in this episode, and it's not a bad episode. Um, mm-hmm. It is not a fast-moving episode. I would imagine that there are people who watch it who get kind of bored. I mean, the mm-hmm. fact the fact that you got voiceover in Act 3 that says, we've been here for six weeks, I mean, <laughs> indicates <laughs> right. that it's not going to be a fast-moving episode. And yet there is a tre- tremendous, amount to, uh, a tremendous amount to consider. I will also say, I don't know if it's because he was maturing as an actor. I don't know if it's because he finally had a good director. There was not an insufferable scene with uh, Crusher. There are mm-hmm. a couple that could have been a little bit stronger, but usually if, if an episode is going to center on Wesley at all, there's going to be some scene that you'd rather gouge your eyes out than watch a second time. Mm-hmm. And that did not happen this time, um, which is kind of great. It, it's great to see a, an episode hinge on Wesley that you don't have to grit your teeth through. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was that was kind of neat. Um, so, yeah, I would say this episode holds up. I mean... There are going to be people who are going to be bored by it, I think. But I think there was a there was actually a tremendous amount here. It's a it's a it's a good thorny episode of Star Trek. 
Well, so then let's talk about morals, meanings, and messages. Okay. Uh, because it, here's, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this holds up as an episode of Star Trek. You and I agree. But there were points when I had to ask myself if the Prime Directive is of use to anyone outside of Star Trek fans debating the Prime Directive. Because there were moments in this where I just felt like, okay, it is a slow-moving episode. Have you seen that Onion, uh, uh, the Onion uh, parody newspaper? They did a video about Star Trek fans um, not liking the uh, the J.J. Abrams movie because it didn't have the kind of slow, boring debates <laughs> of the original Star Trek. You know, no, I didn't, but that's funny. Uh, it's good. I'll I'll send it to you. Maybe I'll I'll post it on our website. Um, but I kept thinking, like, okay, they're they're debating the fate of this planet and this alien and blah 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 and and i thought there are other times when we've talked about the prime directive like the corbomite maneuver where we get to we get to analyze it from a very human point of view which is i'm going to be better than myself i'm going to reach out a hand to help mm-hmm. even if it feels against my my gut reaction to do so right and, and this one played out in a very kind of academic way but we got to infuse it with with a little bit of uh, that that emotional temperance uh, to to help us come to a, a come to a decision. So maybe then the way that I looked at it when when looking at the message is um, that we're in this constant struggle of deciding when the needs of the few or the one outweigh the needs of the many. When is the right time to put aside? the the kind of moralistic platitudes and and sticking by the rule book because there is somebody who needs help. Mm. Uh, Picard has that great line. You reminded us that there are obligations that go beyond duty. That's what he said to Data at the end. Mm-hmm. So the message then that I took away that that holds up on a personal and, and a real world level instead of just here's Star Trek. And again, here's people striking heroic poses and talking about lofty, high minded ideals. That's the thing that I think has emotional resonance for an audience. Now, what about you? Well, I mean, when you ask whether the prime directive is of any use to anyone, you know, besides Star Trek fans who debate it, I think the prime directive is, I mean, the prime directive is just a stand in for a code of honor or a code of conduct or uh, uh, things that you've decided that you're going to do. And then those things are, I mean, as you say, those things are debatable. They're mutable. I mean, they're not, yeah. well, mutable not, might not be the right word. They're debatable, though. You can, yes, you've got this code of conduct, and sometimes that calls you to do wonderful things, and sometimes that calls you to do bad things. And yet we're still people who are trying to live by this code of conduct. So sometimes we may not live up to the wonderful things that it's calling us to. At the same time, we may not be so rigid that we're just going to, you know, ignore ignore what someone else uh, needs. I I think Pulaski said um, she could not subscribe to Worf's rigidity around the Prime Directive. Is there a message? I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know unless the message is that – your uh, rules are meant to be broken. I mean, in a way, I mean, just because you have this, you know, very rigid idea of how things should go, there may be situations where you need to step outside of that. Um, and sort, uh, certainly we should not miss the whole management angle. We shouldn't miss the whole command angle, you know, mm-hmm. 
you're a 25 year old guy who's just been made manager of your Burger King and you've got a 62 year old guy who works there. Well, you can tell him what to do because even though he's 40 years, your senior or a little bit less than that, uh, it's still your job to lead. Yeah, I don't know why I did the Burger King thing, except, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put it in as real world a level as possible. Sure. Um, the yeah. management the management tips in this or the command tips in this are interesting, even if you don't have anybody working for you. I mean, it's it's just the whole, you know, I, I don't know how to do this. Well, start by doing it and then, you know, hopefully it'll get better and easier as you go. So uh, the management or the command messages are the biggest messages it seems to me and the rest mm. of it is really interesting sort of moral moral discussion and and moral weighing but either way i think i think it all holds up both as an episode and as a as a group of messages if you take those messages away agreed right. agreed well cool all right well then i guess there's just a couple of other things to tell people uh, mission log is produced by roddenberry entertainment executive producer rod roddenberry who by the way is not in the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation <laughs> Pen Pals. You can find more about what he is into, though, at Roddenberry.com. Actually, it's him and the whole Roddenberry organization. Uh, for more information, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, you can check out Trek FM. That is online at Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, Ken, we get revisited by an old friend. It's Q... Who? Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I think we all learned a valuable lesson today. I just wish I could remember what it was. And transmission. <laughs>